Well, I take from my text this morning, the ninth verse of the seventh chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome today to my second sermon in our series on sex. Today we get to follow up on what I preached on last week and go a little bit deeper into the subject. This is a fascinating and important topic. Last Sunday, we looked at the deafening Christian silence on sex, particularly among mainline churches. Mainline Christian churches almost never talk about sex, even though we live in a highly sexualized culture today. This silence makes a mockery of our claim that God is present in all our lives. Surely if God is present in our lives, then God is present in our sex lives as well. When we are silent, we end up supporting the traditional Christian viewpoint that has its roots in Augustine of Hippo that all sensual pleasures, including sex, are bad. This distorted view actually causes us harm and is unhelpful in our attempt to discern what a healthy Christian sexual ethic might look like. So our first step is to acknowledge these realities and to admit that we need a new, more thoughtful Christian sexual ethic. The next and most obvious question to ask, at least for Christians, is what does the Bible say about sex? We are a people of the book. For better or for worse, the Bible is the touchstone of our faith lives. We proclaim that God continues to speak to us through the inspiration of the biblical text. So what does the Bible have to say about sex? Any thoughts? Do any passages come to mind, those of you who are Bible gurus? Of course, conservative Christians claim that their sex ethic is based on the Bible. And their central claim is that the Bible prohibits sex outside of marriage. And that claim usually goes uncontested. Well, I'd like to examine it a little more closely. And to do so, I'd like to focus our attention on our text for this morning that Christopher just read from 1 Corinthians 7. It is in this passage that Paul talks about sex and marriage. It's also one of the most commonly cited by conservatives to bolster their view on sex in the Bible. Moreover, this passage highlights Paul's worldview, which he shared with most Jews of his time. And since Paul is writing to a church that is in the Greek world, it gives us some sense of what many Greco-Romans thought about sex. No other text can better help us unpack our subject today. I do have a slight warning, a slight caveat. Uh, I do warn you that I'm about to be a big Bible nerd in the sermon to follow. (laughs) So for those of you who grew up up Southern Baptist or Church of Christ or non-denominational, I think you'll love this deep dive into the Bible. (laughs) For those of you who didn't grow up in a Bible-focused church, which I know is many of you, you can always look outside uh, (laughs) through those beautiful clear glass windows at the trees. I'm sure it's not the first time you've spent a sermon doing that. (laughs) It is great to be in a meeting house like this. 
Now, for this sermon, uh, I'd like to say up front that I owe a large debt to two wonderful New Testament scholars who did groundbreaking work on sex and the New Testament, and they are William Countryman and Dale Martin. If you're interested in learning more, let me know, and I'll direct you to their wonderful books after the service. And now to the text. Paul opens the 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians with these words. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Or if you prefer, we can see the same passage in J.B. Phillips' well-known translation. Now let me deal with the questions raised in your letter. It is a good principle for a man to have no physical contact with women. Nevertheless, because casual liaisons are so prevalent, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. Reading through these verses, it seems obvious that those in Corinth are advocating abstinence, that is, refraining from sex, while Paul is advocating marriage, at least in part to avoid having sex outside marriage. Pretty clear, wouldn't you say? As he says, because casual liaisons are so prevalent, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. There it is. Avoid casual liaisons. Get married. The conservatives are right. Right? Well, sort of. What exactly is the context here? In the preceding verses, at the end of 1 Corinthians 6, verses that I did not read for today, but which are highly relevant, as you'll see, Paul is discussing that wonderful subject, fornication. Shun fornication, he writes. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Now, at first glance, this seems rather unsurprising. Paul opposes fornication. No big deal, right? Pretty much lines up with our expectations. Until you realize that Paul is actually arguing this point with those in Corinth. Clearly, there are those in Corinth who do not feel the same way as Paul. There are those who are fornicating in in the Corinthian church and who don't think it's that big a deal. Now, the traditional reading of this text, that is the text at the end of of 1 Corinthians 6, is that there are those in Corinth who feel that since through Jesus the law was abolished, they can do whatever they want, including fornicating. The law doesn't matter, so go have fun. Sounds pretty nice. The Corinthians clearly don't see fornication as nearly as big a deal as Paul does. Now, this becomes really confusing. This becomes really confusing, though, when we get to this first verse of 1 Corinthians 7 that I read above. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. So let me get this straight. The Corinthians wrote, it is not well for for a man to touch a woman, or "It it is well for a man not to touch a woman. Aren't these the same Corinthians who don't think that fornication... Is that big a deal? This implies that the Corinthians are both okay with fornication and yet advocating abstinence. Confusing, right? There's clearly, but it's all this stuff is clearly in the text here. So what's going on? What am I missing? Now, Dale Martin, a New Testament scholar at Yale, has convincingly argued. That what is going on here is that Paul and the Corinthians have two very different views on the the body, which lead to two very different views on sex, all of which is highly relevant 
to our interpretation of this text. Paul sees sex in the body in one context. The Corinthians see it in another context. And as you'll see, this analysis also shows how far Paul is from our modern understanding of sex and sexuality. Paul's perspective is not one we share, or, for that matter, that evangelicals share. So let's begin with Paul, and then move on to his opponents in Corinth, and try and figure out what's going on here. In order to understand Paul's views on sex, it's essential to see how important purity concerns were for ancient Jews. Ancient Judaism enshrined its own concerns over purity in the laws of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. There were certain foods, like pork or shellfish, that were inherently unclean and to be avoided. Bodily fluids were also seen as unclean. A woman who was menstruating was unclean. The list goes on and on. The Torah regulated all sorts of things that would separate God's chosen people, the Jews, from everyone else. And certain Jewish groups, like the Essenes, who lived near the Dead Sea in Jesus' time, took these concerns and magnified them in the community. The Pharisees also had a great concern over purity. In the New Testament, if you remember, the Pharisees critiqued Jesus for sharing a table with people who were unclean, i.e. prostitutes and those who did not follow the Jewish law code. Now, the Apostle Paul, of course, had been trained as a Pharisee and as such was deeply concerned for the purity of the body. A healthy body was one that was protected from the unclean outside. You can see why this might matter for sex. For Paul, it was all about purity and cleanness. Now, before we go any further, we need some clarity on a pretty important word because it plays into Paul's concern over purity. It's the word that the New Revised Standard Version translates as either fornication or sexual immorality. The word in Greek is porneia. It comes up at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 and is the focus of the discussion at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul tells the Corinthians to shun porneia, and it is because of porneias that people should get married. So what exactly is it? Porneia is actually quite a broad term that means any sex that is illicit or forbidden. It can mean adultery, but there's also a separate Greek word that specifically means adultery. It's most commonly used in the ancient world to refer to prostitution. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul references a case of incest, which also would fall under the term porneia. But porneia has a specific reference and relevance for Jews. Porneia also referred to sex in a cultic context. During Paul's time, there were certain religious groups that included sex as part of their, regu- as part of their regular worship and initiation rites. As a result, for Jews, porneia became synonymous with pagan religion. Porneia is what those other sinful people do. For Jews, it's a a distinctive Gentile offense. Moreover, when in the Old Testament, Israel is accused of leaving worship of Yahweh and worshiping other gods, the prophets say that Israel is playing the whore. This comes up in a number of places. In other words, when Israel worships other gods, when Israel's not being faithful to God, the one God, Israel is engaging in porneia. This helps explain why Paul here while Paul here and also in other places is intensely concerned about porneia. Porneia is not just about sex for Paul, it's about apostasy, fleeing to Gentile gods. Paul is concerned about the polluting impact of porneia on the Christian community. In 1 Corinthians and in Galatians, 
when Paul lists a series of sins, one of those lists, again, we read last week for our sermon, when he lists this series of sins, right next to porneia is the word that means uncleanness. In Paul's mind, porneia and lack of purity, violating those Torah codes on purity, these two things go together. And this is not just true of Paul. Other Jews felt the same way. They saw the same connection between porneia, purity, and being like the Gentiles. In Acts 15, if you remember, especially for those Bible nerds out there again, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council permits Gentiles to become Christians without circumcision. But it does list three things that are not permitted. Those three things are in order, quote, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from porneia. Abstaining from food sacrificed to idols and blood are, like porneia, fundamentally about avoiding pollution and maintaining purity. That was the Jewish viewpoint. Paul wants Christians to avoid things like prostitution and cultic sex because they could pollute the Christian body. Paul is far more concerned with the dangers of porneia than his opponents in 1 Corinthians because, unlike them, who see porneia as simply porneia, Paul sees it as polluting the body. It's something much more serious to him. Moreover, and here's actually another thing. This comes up in 1 Corinthians 6 when you read it closely. Moreover, Paul believes that everyone has pneuma, in Greek, or spirit, that flow through our bodies. Now, for Paul, pneuma is a substance. It gives our bodies their life, and many people at the time located it in our blood flow. Pneuma was something that also made up the stars and the heavenly bodies. For Paul, pneuma was that part of God that was in each of us. When someone becomes a Christian, according to Paul... They take on the pneuma, the spirit of Christ. The pneuma of Christ literally then flows within us and transforms us. We become literally a part of the body of Christ through the spirit, the pneuma. Paul is concerned with the pollution of that pneuma. When the pneuma of an individual Christian is polluted through porneia, through prostitution and cultic sex, it pollutes not only the body of that individual Christian, but also, by extension, the pneuma of, all, the pneuma of Christ. That is why earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul advocates the expulsion from the community of a member who engages in incest. Not only is that person polluting his own body, he is also polluting the pneuma of Christ and the whole Christian community. The key issue is pollution, is maintaining the purity of of the pneuma, and porneia threatens that. I know this is a little deep into the weeds, but bear with me. Paul's opponents in Corinth... So that's Paul's perspective. Paul's opponents in Corinth see the issue through a whole different lens. In the upper-class Greco-Roman world, people were less concerned with purity and pollution than with balance. This would have been the view of many within the church in Corinth. The The healthy human body was one that kept all the bodily humors in balance. Too much sex, for instance, was bad because it would drain the body of semen, which was seen as being of providing a vital life force, and therefore create an imbalance. Certain Greco-Roman authors recommended abstaining from sex as a means of not only self-control, but also to keep that powerful semen inside. Others saw the periodic discharge of semen as healthy for the overall body, because again, it helped maintain balance. Now for these Christians, these Christians who would take this viewpoint, engaging in porneia, say hiring a prostitute or having some kind of illicit sex, was not necessarily a good thing, but it wasn't necessarily an awful thing either. It might display a lack of self-control or a lack of balance, 
but it was not a deep threat to the health of the church or the body of Christ, as Paul believed. The ideal for this group in Corinth was abstinence, because it showed self-control over the body, which was the Stoic ideal. But a lack of self-control was something to be worked on, not something to be expunged from the community in case, there's one, in case of one violation. Hopefully now you can begin to see where Paul and his opponents were coming from. They had two very different views on the threat of porneia. For Paul, porneia threatened to pollute the body and the whole Christian community. For his opponents, porneia was something simply to be avoided to maintain the proper balance and harmony within the body. But in 1 Corinthians 7, there's another important issue outside the threat of porneia. Paul is intensely concerned with desire. And this helps explain his view on marriage and sex. In verse 9, Paul writes, But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Passion, desire for Paul, is a problem because desire leads to sinning, which separates us from God. This is where Paul is very much like the Stoics of his own day and with some of of his opponents in Corinth. The goal for someone is to have complete self-control. It should be the rational mind that dictates our actions. Desire, passion, including sexual desire, get in the way of our own self-control. The ideal for Paul, the ideal for Paul is for people to be like him, that is celibate. Celibacy is the ultimate mark or gift of someone who has self-control. But if you don't have that level of self-control, if you're someone who's too horny, as we might say, then you should go be married. And here's, here's, here's part of Paul's point. You should go be married because, according to Paul, there's no better way to extinguish, to extinguish sexual desire than to be married. <laughs> if you want a bad sex life, simple, just get married. That will extinguish all desire for sex. Again, for Paul, unlike his opponents, the threat of porneia was a serious one because it could pollute the body and, by extension, the pneuma of Christ. The best way to avoid porneia was to extinguish desire, and the best way to do that was to be celibate. The idea was to have self-control and be celibate, but the next best thing was to then get married so that you're not burning with passions constantly, which could then cause problems. Now, you might be wondering at this point what all this has to do with us today, and that's just the question that you should be asking. I hope you can see from my analysis of Paul's message how different his worldview is from our own. Paul was intensely concerned about pollution of the body in ways that we are not. We don't share Paul's concerns because we were not brought up on the purity demands of the Torah. We were not raised as Pharisees. We might have our own senses of purity and pollution, but they're very different from Paul's. Also, we do not share Paul's outlook on what the spirit or pneuma is. For us, the spirit is immaterial, not material. The spirit of Christ is not polluted when we do something that is against the law code in the Torah. That's simply not the way that we see things. And we don't share Paul's view on the dangers of desire and passion. While we recognize that desire has its pitfalls, since we're not as concerned about pollution, we don't insist that all desire be extinguished. Moreover, we don't hold up marriage as a way to extinguish our desire. And we don't believe that celibacy is the ideal. In the 21st century, we frame sexual issues in a dramatically different way than Paul did. Our society talks about healthy, intimate relationships in ways that would have confused Paul and made absolutely no sense to him. We don't share Paul's worldview, and neither do conservative Christians. 
In many ways, our view is more similar to those in Corinth who emphasize balance, moderation, self-control, not pollution. But then again, we're not like the ancient Greeks either. We don't talk about bodily humors and their relation to sex. Our concern, our outlook are different and are like Paul. This is an important thing. Our concerns are like Paul's, a reflection of our own culture and our own worldview. Now, as with every text in the Bible, there are a variety of interpretations. Our interpretations of texts, thankfully, are not constrained by what the original authors thought or by their worldview. We don't need to share Paul's view on what pneuma is or its relation to the pneuma of Christ. After all, we are not Greeks. We do not see the human body in the same way that Paul did. We don't need to share Paul's views on purity. We don't need to share the first century views on the body and what constituted a healthy sexuality for them. The question is, the question that we have to ask ourselves as faithful interpreters of Scripture, is how best are we to interpret these texts? Now, conservative Christians read these texts through the lenses of their own assumptions on sexuality. And again, here's a great example. Listen to how Eugene Peterson, the evangelical translator of the message, translates the first two verses in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what he writes. It is good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have her husband. Sexual drives are strong. But marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilled sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. That's how Peterson translates 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. In the original Greek, there is absolutely nothing about a, quote, balanced and fulfilled sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. That is 100% Peterson's interpretation of Paul. It is not what Paul believed or what he wrote, but it makes sense to Peterson's evangelical audience, and that's the way he glosses the translation. Now, again, this is an incredibly popular translation, by the way, used by people in the United States today. Now, listen to how Peterson translates the verses at the end, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. This is where Paul is advocating celibacy. Okay? This, is what, this is what Peterson writes. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler way of life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage is. God gives the gift of single life to some, the gift of married life to others. Again, Peterson's translation lines up with how evangelicals interpret this text. Peterson's translation, however, has little to do with Paul's actual words and even less to do with Paul's historical context. Evangelicals interpret these texts outside their historical context. That is a part of, the interpretive, of interpretation and the interpretive process. Now, we need to approach these texts from our lens, a liberal and liberation theology perspective. Again, we experience God through our interaction with God through Jesus, which we feel is something that is different than some others. Okay? It's about liberation. It's about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul is intensely concerned with the threat of porneia. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that look like in our context What do we mean when we say illicit sex? Cultic sexual practices are not something that are a big concern for most of us. I mean, maybe some people, but for most of us, cultic sex practices are not a big concern for us, even though they mattered intensely to Paul. And were a big part of his view on porneia. But that doesn't mean that we aren't concerned with what constitutes healthy sexual boundaries. So what are they? In biblical interpretation, liberals ask, what would align with Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God and his concern for the liberation of the oppressed? 
What does that mean for our interpretation of porneia? Is all sex outside of marriage illicit? You can tell by the way I'm phrasing that. My answer is no, but... Let's say, here's, here's, here's a classic example. Let's say you had two people who were divorced or whose spouses had died. Then they get together but decide not to be married for a variety of reasons. And there could be a whole host of them. This is a very common thing in society today. Would people say those people are engaging in porneia? Almost certainly not. So how do we judge this? How do we look more deeply into what this concept actually means for us? And similarly, how do we interpret Paul's view on desire? Clearly, desire can lead us astray in a variety of ways, but what does that look like? If we want our interpretation to be in line with our experience of God and the liberative message of Jesus, then we should not interpret Paul to mean that all desire is bad. Sexual repression is most definitely not the answer. But where is sexual desire problematic for the kingdom of God? What does that look like? Now, these are questions that will concern us in the next sermon in this series, the one on September 30th. We will look at what a liberal Christian interpretation of sex might be and what might make sense in the 21st century. What is that concept of illicit sex? What does it look like? Do you have anything in mind? Be sure to join us in two weeks. I guarantee that discussion will not disappoint.